is the Australian Rescue Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Australian Rescue Podcast. I'll tell you what, you're in for a real treat today uh, because in this episode, we're actually going to be talking to Harry Sanner, who is the director of a film called Trauma that has just been released um, you're going to hear some fascinating insights of uh, what it's like uh, being a journo, uh, a journalist that is, in uh, a military setting in Afghanistan. You're going to hear his story today. Um, I don't want to spoil too much about it, but uh, it is going to be really, really good. If you do want to uh, purchase the film or look up more of what this particular movie is, uh, just head to trauma.film. Yes, that is the domain name, trauma.film, um, and you can read all about it. You can buy a copy of it there as well and uh, even watch the trailer there. So uh, head to that website. But uh, in the meantime, let's sit back, relax, and uh, hope you enjoy this very unique perspective on medivacs in Afghanistan. The Australian Rescue Podcast. G'day, Steve, with you for our latest episode, and it's my special privilege to be able to introduce Harry Sanna. Now, Harry is the, I believe, director um, or creative guy who did all the video editing uh, and all recording, more should I say, uh, for a brand new movie just released this year called Trauma. Uh, Harry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. And uh, yeah, no, I uh, did uh, did the directing and uh, and filming of it, and uh, I had a bit of help with the edit. But uh, yeah, no, I uh, shot shot and directed the thing. Yeah. Well, tell us briefly about this because let's actually before we do, let's go a bit of your background as well because you're only a young fella. Um, if the pictures are anything to go by, um, <laughs> tell us your background briefly to uh, be able to put this in context. I guess. Absolutely, yeah. So I, uh, so my background's uh, journalism. Uh, so I, uh, been a journalist for uh, for a few years now. I'm uh, I'm 30, um, and uh, I, uh, in 2008-9, I uh, shifted over to South Asia and ended up being based in Afghanistan um, for about sort of 18 months, two years. And uh, yeah, during that uh, during that time, I uh, spent a lot of time with a lot of different military units, primarily covering different parts of the war um, and different front lines of that war. Um, while I was there in 2011, at this stage, I uh, spent uh, spent about initially it was going to be five five days, but uh, I ended up stretching it out over about six seven weeks with an American medivac unit. Now, a uh, medivac unit is a uh, is a unit within the American military that uh, flies out in Black Hawk helicopters um, to the front lines and picks up the um, seriously wounded and at times, uh, you know, uh, already passed soldiers. And uh, they can fly into some really serious situations. Uh, they often put uh, put their lives on the line. Uh, in fact, pretty regularly uh, to to get these guys back, men and women. And uh, so I uh, I found this story incredibly compelling, which is why I stretched it out from uh, from my initial uh, five day um, shoot time to uh, to almost two months. And uh, yeah, it was there that uh, that I spent some time with these medics and these helicopter pilots and started to kind of follow their journey over there. Because that's what this this movie is actually about. It's uh, the story of a medic unit. Um, in Afghanistan, doing all these trauma runs as such. 
um, in their big choppers. That's it. Yep. Um, yeah. I was going to say, so how does a, a young Aussie kid get over to Afghanistan thinking, uh, I'm just going to take photos or similar and uh, actually get into uh, a medical unit like this? Yeah, so at, at that stage when I, uh, when I got put in touch and ended up spending some time with this, uh, with this medic unit, I, uh, I'd already spent about 12 months in country over there and I'd developed a, a fairly good relationship with the uh, public affairs office of the uh, of the international um, forces over in Afghanistan, and uh, so it, it culminated basically in in about two months before uh, before catching up with uh, with these guys and spending some time with them. I was with a uh, with a marine unit down in Helmand Province, which is in sort of southern Afghanistan, and. Uh, I uh, was involved in a number of, you know, what they call over there firefights, essentially gun battles, and uh, uh, in, a, in a couple of them uh, over kind of consecutive days, uh, number of uh, number of people in this unit were uh, injured quite badly. Uh, a couple were killed as well, and uh, I saw firsthand these uh, these medivac units, uh, these sort of you know big Black Hawk helicopters, just kind of descend into the fray, uh, and uh, and you know these these guys kind of rush out in the full helmets and and medical gear, kind of kitted out all over their all over their body armor, and and sort of pick up these soldiers. And so it was after seeing that firsthand uh, when I went back up to Bagram Air Base, which is the main the main I guess HQ for for American and international forces just outside of Kabul. Um, I went to the public affairs office there and said, look, I'd. Uh, I'd really like to get out with uh, with this unit. I'd like to spend some time in country with uh, with one of these uh, one of these helicopter units, and uh, and it, it essentially went from there. And they said yes. They said yes. They said yes. Yeah. No. I was. Uh, I was. I was. I mean, this this project's been seven years in the making. Uh, so I was. Uh, I was a considerably younger bloke then. Um, yeah, 23, 24 years old. Uh, I actually had my birthday uh, turning 24 while I was with them. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, which was sort of, I mean, I was, you know, I was young in terms of a journalist over there, but actually around the same age as a lot of the, uh, a lot of the soldiers over there doing the fighting. So, um, so it was kind of, I had a pretty unique perspective to, uh, I guess, that experience. And I think that also really helped with... Uh, Developing a bit of a closer bond with uh, with some of the soldiers on the ground there. Yeah, for sure. Well, the summary, I guess, of the movie is you, you went through um, these experiences with these guys. Um, obviously, you did a, a few missions of your own to be able to get some of the footage. Um, mm. But uh, I, I guess, as you say, you know, a seven-year project, um, and we'll probably touch more on, on these guys later, but uh, you actually followed the movie up. Um, with a, a where are they now kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So I guess uh, I guess from from spending time over there with them, uh, and um, you know, I got to stress that at that time I had no uh, no intentions or designs on turning their experience into a uh, into a feature documentary. Uh, that uh, that came probably about two years later, and uh, and it actually came about because uh, in sort of late 2011, early 12, I, uh, I came back to Australia. And uh, I've got to be honest, about sort of 
six, 12 months. I mean, maybe I'm being kind, maybe 18 months. Uh, I kind of really, uh, I really went through some struggles of my own, just kind of reintegrating, reassimilating into uh, life back here in Australia, uh, back in Sydney. And, uh, and it was, I guess, through that experience that I started to relook at some of the footage I'd shot, some of the interviews I'd done with those guys. And I actually really started to wonder, you know, and I, I, I had, I had my, uh, I had my really sort of dark phase there. I wonder if these guys are going through the same. Because I mean, I was exposed to it for six weeks. These guys, some of them had done four or five year-long tours between Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, and I, I just became really interested in 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 what that experience was like for those guys. So, um, so I reached back out. I had a couple of email addresses noted in an old, uh, in an old uh, pad of mine and, uh, and sent a couple of emails around. And then from sort of 2013, I, uh, I started to track these guys down back in the States. And uh, then every year when I had sort of a three-month period off, I would uh, go back over the States and, and travel around and, and, and spend time with, uh, with the men and women of, of this medevac unit and... Uh, and really try and, I guess, show the show the day to day life of of that uh, reassimilation into civilian society process and and what that looked like. Well, uh, I tell you what, it's um, a fascinating movie, and I think trying to uh, cover everything in uh, a short period of time that we're going to today. Um, let's just play the trailer quickly, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Here it is. I don't want to have to explain to my wife or my daughter some of the things I see. It's easier just to leave it at, you know, daddy's just helping people. It's, that's what medics do. You're in Afghanistan, say like last Monday. Now you're home sitting with your wife a week later. You know, last week I was just listening to the sounds of C-130s landing and Chinooks taking off, rockets shooting overhead and horns going off and running to the bunker and here I am in fucking Quietsville. unsung heroes. Now I turn wrenches on rich people's airplanes. Nobody gives a shit. You gotta be kind of off to do this job. Things that we see, people actually getting killed close to you. At the end of the day, I want to be able to let go of some of this. going on in your head, what you heard, what you were dreaming about, doesn't match what you're seeing visually. It takes a minute to go, oh, that's right, that was, that was then, this is now. So while you've probably heard that a dozen hundred times, <laughs> how does it make you feel, though, when you hear those stories? Because you witnessed a lot of that stuff as well. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I, I guess it's 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 twofold, or maybe even threefold. Uh, it uh, it's uh, intense. I mean, in in many ways, um, the process of of putting the film together and just the logistics of you know uh, tracking these guys down, spending time with them, and and frankly, the uh, the amount of time six years after after the fact of of the Afghanistan experience. 
I, I guess, really kind of gave me a lot of catharsis uh, putting putting the film together. And I think I was, uh, to, to hit the second point, I was really, I feel a great amount of privilege that I was able to tell this story. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I think between myself as as a filmmaker and and these guys as as subjects of this film there was, there was sort of a lot of vulnerability on show um and you know if you watch the film you can you can kind of see that and uh yeah and and thirdly i mean i, I a great amount of uh, of pride uh, for being able to kind of see, see the film through um and uh and uh, yeah look i'm really i'm really happy to get it out and the, the response has been really really positive so far and uh and it's i think what it's been uh it's been really really positive out of the whole experience is, has been some of the uh some of the personal emails and and calls i've gotten from family members not only of uh of these guys in the film but um but of other veterans in general and to to broaden it from there um other people working as paramedics and and firefighters and um you know, to talk to uh, your own listenership, um, you know, SES volunteers and the family members of these people that have that have done incredible things under great duress and really uh, made a great difference to uh, to individual lives and and prolong life and saved life. Um, that's been that's honestly, it's been a, it's been a huge honour to be able to, uh, in some small way, uh, contribute to a broader appreciation for that. Yeah, oh, totally. Look, so I, I watched it and uh, I can sort of relate to, you know, some of those things uh, that those guys go through. That's for sure. I mean, you know, you'd be sitting around just obviously enjoying a meal with uh, friends and family and the pager goes off, boom, you're out the door next minute and, uh, you know, you're doing something that they've got no idea about what's going on uh, while you're out on the job. You come back and uh, everything's back to normal as such, but they've got no idea. You've just put two or three people in a chopper and, and cut people out of vehicles. Um, well, that's exactly right. And that's I mean, the thing. I, I, yeah, yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And I think, uh, I think what's what's really interesting there is uh, is the fact that people, you know, they have a very uh, a broad, fairly uh, simplistic understanding of what it's like to be a first responder. And um, and you know, what I really tried to do in the film was actually show the. Uh, the immediacy of that and also the long-term effects of that. And, and as you just said, uh, you know, that's sort of that pager or that radio going off, you know, for these guys, it's something consistently comes up that I keep coming back to in the film. You know, they, uh, they did 24 hour duty cycles that they were on and, uh, they were on call, uh, you know, day and night and whether they were in the shower, on the toilet, uh, you know, at dinner, um, they were, uh, they had seven minutes uh, when that uh, radio call sign came off uh, through the air and said medivac, medivac, medivac. Uh, they had seven minutes to haul ass to these Black Hawk helicopters and get them in the air and start heading out to these, these places. And I think the enduring legacy of that on a, on a, uh, on a psychological front is, uh, is, is hard to overcome, you know? Mm. Yeah, true. It uh, it does play an effect. I mean, look, even after you put a pager away or whatever, you, you can go into Macca's and you can hear the um the the chips or the fries alarms going off, and you go to reach for it and go, oh, hang on a minute, it's just a, it's, it's not the pager, it's it's the deep fry machine. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah just no, that's one a, of those that's things. It doesn't right. leave you. Yeah, no, no, and there's there's 
there's one 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 moment in the film where one of the uh, one of the guys, uh, Julian, uh, was talking about that. He said, uh, you know, I'd be back in America walking through, you know, a Walmart uh, supermarket, and uh, he'd hear the uh, squelch of the radio. And it's, uh, his whole body had tightened up. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, and then he'd come over, you know, clean up on aisle nine. And his, uh, his adrenaline had pumped up and he was ready to go. And that was years after, you know. Mm. It's interesting how uh, your body tunes to that kind of thing. Look, I, uh, Harry, right. I, I would like to know what it's like um, as an observer um, with you going out on these um, medical evacuation missions. Uh, I did see in the movies that, uh, that you know, they land and pretty much people just get loaded in straight away. I mean, what's actually going on with that kind of... Can you take us through a typical call as such? Yeah, well, I guess um, as a caveat to that, there's... there's there's no typical call, uh, which I which I understood uh, quite quickly when I was spending time with them. And um, I mean, one thing I guess is context to understand about Afghanistan is uh, uh, it's uh, the the fighting is incredibly seasonal, um, which is you know due in part to the fact that uh, the um, uh, glacial after winter across the Pakistan border. Uh, often, once once those uh, once those mountain passes are open, a lot of fighters pour over, and and the war really picks up again, which sort of usually happens around uh, sort of March time, around this time of the year. And uh, and I happened to be there, uh, which was primarily sort of happenstance um, at that time where you know uh, the uh, these the the snow was melting and uh, you know throughout the film you can kind of see that 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 change of uh, that change of season and so before that you know they were uh, for the first few days um, that I was out with them the calls they were getting was I mean it was it was kind of more just the uh, I, I guess for lack of a better word the less sexy elements of uh, of of conflict and just a lot of people on the ground doing kind of day-to-day things. So, you know, an uh, American soldier chopping wood for a fire and missing a, missing a piece of wood and, and kind of splitting his knee in half, you know. So it was, it was things like that to begin. But then at about the six, seven-day mark, I mean, uh, there was no... I, I couldn't have been in a more poignant area to understand just how significant that, uh, that switchover into fighting season really was. Um, and... Uh, it became, you know, these incredibly grave and, and heavy uh, sets of injuries. I mean, obviously, IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices for these, these landmines or, or, or kind of various elements of, uh, of high explosives kind of packed into all sorts of areas. Um, you know, they had devastating effects on, on uh, international forces and local forces there and, and, and local, as they say, over, call them at the time, local nationals, just, you know, yeah. uh, Afghan, Afghan nationals. They, are, uh, you know, these, these things were really nasty and the, uh, and the, the injuries and wounds sustained were, you know, horrible. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that was, that was probably predominantly kind of the, the kinds of injuries they were. Obviously there were, um, a lot of gunshot wounds as well, but, um, so I, I guess to, to, to answer that question a little more succinctly, um, some of these uh, some of these injuries and what these what these missions would look like would be they'd get a very basic call through radioed from 
one of the on-ground people involved in a firefight at that time, and they say, look, we've just been hit with uh, an IED strike. Um, we've got uh, two casualties, potentially three. Um, and in the in the background of these radio calls, often you can hear the uh, hear the uh, firefight still going on. So it's a very uh, very kinetic uh, situation, and that's all these medevac guys need to know uh, at that point. And then they they haul ass and they uh, and they chop off to these uh, to these areas on the ground. Um, they'll often, particularly uh, in sort of obfuscated places behind mountains or in valleys. Um, they'll pop coloured smoke grenades. So you've kind of got this plume of red smoke or, or purple smoke. And, uh, and these, you know, these medivac uh, choppers, they land. There's, uh, they always go in, uh, in sets of two uh, because often as these situations are so volatile and change uh, from moment to moment, uh, they'll go out looking to pick up one casualty and by the time they arrive there, which is usually between sort of 10 and, and 25 minutes, um, you know, there could be five, six, seven. I mean, I saw as many as nine casualties once. And uh, so, you know, the, the situation changes a lot. And, um, and these, these medics and, and the pilots um, are under an incredible amount of, uh, of strain. And also there's, there's a real strong element of winging it, you know, because they just don't know what they're about to land into uh, from a yeah. security perspective and also from a... Uh, from a first aid perspective. So these guys are obviously, um, they're all medically trained, but uh, they fly in with a, a gun strapped to them as well, hanging out the side of the, the chopper, ready to react to anything or yeah. um, just go in and yeah. pray like crazy? I mean, uh, what, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there's, been, there's been an interesting history of, uh, of, of the level of armament of these helicopters. Um, you know, in uh, it goes back to Korea and Vietnam. Uh, this uh, this medivac uh, uh, functionality, this this purpose that they had, this mission. And uh, you know, at that time in Vietnam, in particular, they had big, uh, you know, big machine guns kind of on the side and machine uh, mm. machine gunners kind of operating. Uh, and uh, I, I guess the process has been sort of changed and 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 rechanged over the years. Um, and that came down to sort of specifics of, you know, if they had guns mounted to the side, whether they could actually still have the, uh, the red cross on the side and what yeah. their, what their functionality was there. Um, but during the time I was there and it did change over the course of, well, the Afghan war, which is, as we all know, still going on very much so, um, they, uh, they were personally armed and they had a, uh, they had a crew member on board that was a uh, what they call a crew chief who was essentially in charge. He was mechanically trained, so he was in charge of keeping the chopper going in case there was an issue. But he was also armed. So he's not necessarily the pilot? He's not the pilot. So no, two okay. pilots, a crew chief, and usually ideally two medics is sort of was the general crew. But that could, that could change. You know, it was a little fluid. But, um, but uh, yeah, no, there was... Uh, there was Always people armed, and when you watch the documentary as well, you can see sort of day to day that uh, that did change a little. I mean, again, because of the uh, the time restraints on getting up and up in the air, and and kind of getting out there as fast as possible. You know, you've got medics that are running out into the field, and they've got a um, you know a Beretta, uh, like a little pistol, kind of tucked into their medical bag. Sometimes, at other times, they've uh, 
got uh, you know the the carbine, the the, the assault rifle, um, and then other times they they were unarmed. I mean, you know, due to the due to the uh, due to the capacity they had at that time, sometimes just things got left in the chopper. It was uh, it was a little fluid like that. Mm. So I uh, think I recall seeing the chopper landing and people getting loaded almost immediately. There uh, seemed to be sort of not what we do typically here in Australia, where a chopper will land, they'll power it down nearly unless it's super urgent, uh, and you know they'll have their care flight paramedics come out and, and do some extra work uh, before they actually load patients into the chopper. Um, but I'm not seeing that uh, evident in the movie. No, no, um, yeah, no. They roll a little differently over there. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, that's that's it's definitely something. I mean, one of the uh, one of the medics that uh, that I feature in the uh, in the doco, Mike, he uh, he talks about his sort of personal rule, which is thirty seconds on the ground per patient. So if they've got three patients coming on, that's ninety seconds. So obviously, there's there's no no real time to power down the chopper. And at times as well, I mean, these guys also employed, they have a winch uh, because Afghanistan, I mean, it's an incredible landscape there. I mean, you've got deserts in the south, but you've also got really, really mountainous areas in the uh, in the east and the north. Um, so, you know, at times they weren't able to actually land it. So they've got a winch system and the medical comes down and uh, then they'll bring a, a stretcher okay. back up. So, you know, they, they had all of this stuff on hand um, and, you know, they... Uh, each each mission, they really had to make on the spot decisions based on it. But uh, but yeah, no, there was there was really never any powering down of the helicopter unless they were going base to base, which was you know an occasional mission that they did where they were in sort of a, a safer area. But uh, but often um, you know the the helicopters were uh, were targets. Red crosses on the side don't uh, don't matter to a lot of uh, a lot of combatants over there. So um, <laughs> no, I, I was wondering about that. So right. yeah. Mm. It's um, yeah, no, they are uh, frightening. Yeah, no, it is. It is. I mean, gone are the days of uh, conventional warfare. Um, you know, of, of sort of World War One and World War Two, where uh, where the Red Cross would uh, would get you uh, get you free reign to go in and 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 pick up the wounded. Nowadays, uh, nowadays everyone's a target. I mean, I say that as a journalist as well. I mean, mm. over the last uh, ten fifteen years, journalists the same have. Uh, at some point, that uh, that media patch on your uh, on your flak jacket or helmet um, would uh, would ideally get you a pass. It, it's certainly mm. not that case anymore. Interesting, very interesting. So, what's it like when they all get back from a job? Because obviously, you go and pick people up. You've just come from this high trauma thing. You, I guess you you fly back into your base. You drop them off at the um, the field hospital mm. as such. Um, then what? How how do they survive after that kind of thing? Is it bang? follow-on job straight away or well you know? i mean the the nature of the job is um is is they don't know i mean i i was out a couple of times they've obviously got to refuel the chopper but beyond that um they uh they really they really don't know i mean i uh, i had days where they would just sit around um playing darts or uh or just shooting the shit and uh and, and no missions would come in, but more often, and particularly after the fighting season started, um, you know, sometimes they'd get called out 10, 12 times a day, and they literally had, you know, five, 10 minutes refueling time, and they were already running late for the next mission. So they could, uh, you know, they could they could get back-to-back missions, uh, particularly on big operations out in the field. Uh, they could get missions back-to-back for hours, and. Uh, 
So there's there's obviously they've got to really uh, prolong their uh, their sense of. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, it came down to just whether you know, you know just maintaining their level of energy um, for these missions because obviously yeah. they're incredibly adrenaline fueled. But um, but they didn't have a lot of backup, and particularly on really big days, um, it was just them out there. So they'd, they'd work tirelessly, and as as I'm sure many of your uh, many of your viewers would know, I mean, even just the uh, uh, the mechanics of, of of doing compressions in CPR over a 25 minute period um, in those helicopters, which they were doing at times. Uh, you know, it's so physically taxing, uh, but they, uh, you know, they developed they developed a, a, a sense of longevity with the job that uh, that honestly was remarkable. Mm. I was curious about the uh, kind of equipment they actually had on board too, whether or not you know they've got all the um, instruments they can hook up and check all that kind of stuff and various drugs and stuff. But um, did is yeah, is it super yeah. modern? Or when when they talk about military medicines these days, is it you know? Advanced more so than we we see these days on on the roads. Look, I mean, I I, I can't I can't speak really to uh, to what what EMTs here uh, in uh, you know paramedics I should say uh, here in Australia uh, have because uh, I just I, I think we haven't spent enough enough time uh, with uh, with that workforce to to know. But um, you know they had uh, they had all manner of. Um, all manner of obviously painkillers uh, on board, uh, but on top of that, you know, they had uh, they had. And you'll have to excuse me here. I am um, sorry. I just uh, I'm just actually trying to recall all the things. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, right. misappropriate what they actually had in terms of the technical uh, specifics. But you know, they they had you know they had heart monitors and obviously a. Um, a fairly considerable amount of IV drips and 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 painkillers on board to uh, I guess to ease that ease that uh, ease these people that are you know seriously injured. But um, but what they'll I mean it's it's incredibly it's incredibly basic just based on the uh, the brutal nature of often these injuries and you know so they, these guys were getting they get brought onto the helicopter with these serious injuries they'd get strip bare the IV would go in and they'd be monitoring heart rates if they could put on um, put on patches and kind of keep uh, keep a heart monitor on them they would but at times that was that was impossible um, and uh, you know they did what they could but uh, at the same time the uh, the, the crew chiefs um, which were sort of helping out at the same time would radio into the uh, FSTs the forward surgical teams which I guess that uh, that classic sort of mash style field hospital uh, that they would bring these uh, bring these people back to, uh, they would kind of keep them updated, and and in text I would often write out what uh, what drugs they were giving them just on their legs or whatever available uh, piece of body that they were looking at. So when it went straight into the uh, into the surgery, uh, they would know obviously not to over administer any drugs and and you know induce heart attacks or 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 overdoses. Yeah, I guess it'd be an interesting handover. It's like here's our guy. He just got his leg. I don't know, blown or something, and uh, no, good luck. Right. He's had this much drugs. Exactly. No, that's right. I mean, I, I can't stress to you just how um, how expedient and how fast this this whole thing goes. You know, it's uh, it's 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 an ambulance on steroids. Yeah, I can imagine. So you've come back from it all. Um, how have uh, the other guys gone in the past? I mean, because you know they they're coming back 
to their families? Um, you know, how have they how have they survived the aftermath of even leaving this kind of scenario, just coming back on a furlough before going back out? Yeah, I mean, when they finish their tours of duty, um, you know, I th- it's a it's a real struggle um, and and an ongoing one. Um, as they phase out of the military, as, as many of my subjects did over the course of the six, seven years that I was following them. Um, I think one of the things that perhaps is, is lesser known or lesser appreciated by the civilian public, if you will, uh, is, is the loss of, the loss of identity, uh, that a lot of these men and women suffer after phasing out of that particular job, that mission set. And, uh, and I, I kind of really tried to, to, to work that in the film. Uh, and, and, and I really tried to make the audience understand what it's like to go from flying over the, over the mountains of Afghanistan and landing into these heavy firefights in the middle of a war zone, picking people up, keeping them alive. And, you know, they come home and, uh, as, as one of the, uh, one of the people in my film very articulately says, uh, you know, we're supposed to be husbands, we're supposed to be fathers, we're supposed to be sons. And I think that's a, that's a, really, it's a really tough transition for a lot of them. And, uh, you know, for, for one, of the, one of the guys in my film, Spare, Robert, he, uh, you know, he talks a lot to the fact that in phasing out of the military, he has a job as a... Um, as a civilian contractor that uh, does the mechanics on private airplanes uh, in uh, Boise, Idaho. And uh, he said, uh, we were, uh, uh, you know, he said, uh, he says very candidly, he says, we were, we were unsung fucking heroes over there. And now I come home and I, I turn wrenches on rich people's aircraft. Nobody gives a shit. And I, I think that really typifies uh, the feeling a lot of these guys have. You know, to, to go from, from that job to, uh, to just, you know, in comparison, relatively humdrum workaday lifestyles back in America is, is, is a major, major issue that they, uh, that they need to overcome. And, you know, most unfortunately, a, a, lot, of these, uh, a lot of these guys, soldiers, not just in the medical contingent, but in, uh, in the combatant contingent as well, they are... Uh, they don't deal with it, and that's why suicide rates are so high amongst veterans. Yeah, I was looking at something about uh, uh, one in, uh, what was it, 20 a day or something crazy, um, yeah. which is absolutely yeah. no, amazing. Right. Yeah. It's, it's way too high. Um, I know. It's, it's staggering. Yeah. It's staggering. Um, but, so, I mean, the, the guys you've spoken with and uh, followed, shall we say, for the last several years... Um, at one point in the movie, you said, "Oh, where's I can't remember his name. Where's um, let's call him Bob. Where's Bob these days? I don't know. I haven't heard from Bob for a while. I'm getting a bit concerned. They're obviously looking mm-hmm. out for each other, though. Particularly if you've been in that small, close knit community um, for so long, it's all experiencing exactly the same thing, and everybody's going through the same thing at the same time. You get you form this bond, and you just want to look out for each other. I think." They are, yeah, and they have. They have formed that bond. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think that, uh, I mean, it's been well, well covered and well, well documented, but, the, but the, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the humanhood of, uh, of, of what, these, 
what these people forge uh, in in combat is is something that stays for life, and I think it's also incredibly important, particularly as uh, as these people phase out of the military and 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 kind of I guess get lost out of the system. Um, you know, I, I kind of I always compare uh, the Veterans Affairs Department of, of the United States and 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 the uh, the support that they try and give to veterans. I mean, they're very they're very big hands, and uh, you know they catch a lot. But uh, but every soldier is is a grain of sand, and so a lot fall between the fingers. And and I think um, I think that's that's really true to uh, to these men and women in in this particular unit I follow. Um, you know, they are they are many of them reaching out and 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 getting the help that they need, but but often it can't be tailored specifically. I mean, we're talking you know, 1.52 million veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq in America alone, uh, which is huge numbers. I don't think a lot of people realize just how many people have uh, have served over there and in, you know, many capacities. Um, but I think uh, I think a lot of these people fall through the cracks in terms of the care that they, they need, and every single person needs a very tailored, a very specific, a very individualized level of uh, of care and sensitivity and and no organization no matter how the uh how big their heart is and and how much capacity they have to uh to look after people you know there's too many there's too many so that's that that's why it's really important that these that these men and women take care of each other in their unit and check in on each other because you know you know otherwise uh you know they lose people and and i think they're you know there's there's very few units within uh, within the military now that are veterans of these wars that haven't haven't had somebody that either has committed suicide or uh, or certainly been right on the brink of it. Well, um, I I do wonder. I mean, you've you've been over there for uh, you know a, a fair while. You you've seen your stint and all the rest of it. You've come back. You talked about readjusting yourself to even Australian life. Um, you know, as a journo, just observing things, some of the things you would have seen, the sights, the smells, um, uh, can't imagine what it's like for those guys. We see things on the road sometimes that the average um, person will never see in their lifetime, yet uh, they reckon even with uh, rotations of um, staffing for ambulance officers and things, you know, they're on a, a shift, but they go on holidays and all the rest of it. But it turns out it's often the volunteers, believe it or not, to see a lot more because they're at home, they're in the area, and they always see these things more than the average Ambo who might see one or two traumatic calls a year. Um, Is that right? I, did, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, from, what, I I, from that. what I've been told, the uh, average trauma call for an Ambo is not that long unless you're serving in a micro position, then, you know, it's just heart attacks and, um, you know, strokes and uh, asthma attacks kind of thing mm. rather than your high trauma calls as well. But... Uh, yeah. Um, you know, so from you going and seeing all that stuff to coming home, I mean, I've got to ask, how, how have you handled all that kind of thing? Have you needed to go and, and hang out with other people and, and talk to them and not relive it, but, yeah. um, you know. No, I mean, part of it's part, I think part of the process is reliving it to a degree. Um, you know, and that, and that kind of age old, uh, almost cliche of, uh, you know, swapping war stories. Uh, amongst people in your industry, I think uh, that's still very relevant uh, today. And I, I think uh, 
there's not a single person that works in the industry that deals with trauma. Um, and whether that's firefighters, um, paramedics, um, I mean, you know, nurses, uh, doctors, yeah. ER surgeons, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's an experience that very few people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think in that way, uh, the, the poignancy and also the, uh, the isolation uh, that, that comes along with that job and with that set of, set of skills and, and set of experiences is, uh, is incredibly personal. And, uh, and that's why I think it, it, it is really important. Um, and look, for, for myself, I, um, uh, I, I think I, 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 I thought, um, a small amount of, uh, uh, I went, went, went to see a couple of different psychologists. I didn't, I didn't really stick at it. I guess, I guess in many ways I was a little, um, a little sandbagged my, by my own capacity to, to understand or, uh, or want to process kind of what I'd experienced personally. Cause I mean, as, as you said before, as a journalist, as an observer, I thought, well, you know, I'm just here operating a camera and doing interviews, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing what these guys are doing. Um, but I mean, just, you know, just through being there myself, I, I mean, I definitely had some issues and I, I think for me, the, the best, uh, treatment that I, I've done for myself is, um, is in doing this film and is seeking, uh, seeking these men and women out again and, uh, and, and spending time with them in their homes and, and swapping more stories, you know, that's, uh, and then, and then putting this film together. Uh, I mean, that's been a huge, a huge cathartic, uh, moment for me and, and for my life. And, and also one that, that I'm incredibly fortunate and lucky to have had to be able to, I guess, work through it in that way. And, and a huge part of that has been the, uh, the level of access and, and intimacy and, and friendship and, uh, and vulnerability that, uh, has been offered to me by these incredibly brave men and women. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful for, for the small part I could play in, in telling their story. Yeah, well, you did a great job and the stories come through really, really well. Um, Thanks I, a lot. Look, I, I guess my, my final question is um, with these vets coming home, um, in your story of the people you particularly followed, I am aware that there were lots of others in uh, the medical groups and things that you did meet and know in the past. Um, but the ones mm. you followed, um, they have they haven't gone back into a medical role or anything sort of apart from our mate doing uh, fixing aeroplanes. Uh, typically, mm-hmm. the rest of them haven't gone back into that field in civilian life. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good observation. And I wonder why. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think for for a lot of them, and it comes back to what I was saying before uh, a little bit about uh, that loss of identity. I, I think a couple of them did spend a little time as as paramedics, and a number of the uh, number of the medics that I. Uh, didn't end up featuring in my film that I wish I could have, but just for brevity's sake, couldn't uh, couldn't uh, couldn't couldn't tell their stories to a justifiable degree. Um, have done that, but I think for a lot of them, it was it was about changing their lives in a huge way. And I mean, you'll see it 
throughout the film, and I, I kind of really tried to showcase a variety of ways people deal with this. But you're right, as a uh, as a universal factor, all of them have chosen jobs and lives and uh, and lifestyles that uh, in many ways are incredibly contradictory to the one that they had before. And I think that's just been a part of personally rebranding is a is in many ways, they are a, 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 a bad term to use, but it's it's about it's about reshaping themselves in a way that they can compartmentalize uh, their experiences from there, and also move on with their lives, you know, in a way. And 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 whether that is, you know, for one of my uh, one of my characters, selling selling all, you know, his possessions and moving uh, to. Washington State to the Yakima River to become a fly fishing instructor, yeah. <laughs> or whether it's through um, whether it's through having a child uh, with your partner. I mean, you know, these uh, the, the experiences of, of reshaping and reforming the meaning and purpose to their lives have been uh, have been intricate and 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 in many ways quite methodical in in the ways that they are. Uh, that they've done that, but you're right. It's it's. I think it's a really interesting and important element to the film that uh, as as these as these guys' lives play out, you notice that they all start to really veer away from that from that trauma, from that medical uh, component. Totally. Well, my um, guest today on the Australian Rescue Podcast is been uh, journalist and director. Uh, Harry Sanna, who has been embedded in the Black Hawk Medivac units in Afghanistan. Um, Harry, is there anything else you'd like to share with us uh, today before I let you go? Yeah, look, I, I, I guess, I guess as a, uh, as a, as a parting uh, message for uh, for anyone that that works in any uh, any capacity as a uh, as a first responder um, or within the medical field itself. I mean, these experiences, as normalized as they can seem after uh, after a certain amount of time out in the field and doing this job, I mean, they're incredibly stressful and uh, they are going to have lasting effects. And, and if, if anyone does feel that they are struggling in any way, I mean, Australia is... Uh, it offers a lot of opportunity to, uh, to talk uh, about, uh, about that with professionals that can that can really help and and talking is such an important and also such a difficult beginning to the process of of healing personally and uh yeah i would uh, i would urge anyone that's that's feeling any way remotely affected by their job and i think everyone is um to to talk about it as much as they can well that's exactly right talk with your mates i mean there's peer support groups in nearly every emergency service and, and things around. Uh, there's all the lifelines and Beyond Blues groups as well. If you need to talk to somebody, there's, there's plenty of opportunities. So um, that's that's what we're all here for. Um, look out for each other, that's for sure. Absolutely. Um, Steve, thank you so much. And, and you know, to all your, uh, all your listeners uh, that, that work in... Uh, work in these fields, I, I just... I mean, I can't express enough uh, the gratitude that we as a public feel towards the job that you have. It's not an easy one and uh, it's a very selfless one. And, and, you know, thank you to everyone. Well, thank you as well for uh, taking a time out to have a chat today. And uh, for people cool. who want to actually go and see this film, um, you can get it on iTunes and Amazon. 
Um, That's right. And we're also doing a, uh, a uh, theatrical release oh. uh, at some point soon. Um, so, uh, so 4K on the big screen, it. yes. On the big screen, <laughs> and it's uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll urge those that uh, if uh, if they're near a cinema, that's showing it to uh, to experience it on the big screen because they uh, yeah. I spent a lot of time really trying to uh, to kind of create that immersive experience uh, on uh, in the cinema with the uh, you know between the surround sound and 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 quality of the image to kind of really. Uh, really put you in the in the position of, of these first responders. Oh, certainly, yeah. It's certainly not a, a B-class film. It's a very, very well done. And uh, you can go and purchase a copy if you would like yourself. Uh, I think it's at trauma, uh, www.trauma.film. Does that sound right? That sounds perfect. All right. Or at facebook.com forward slash trauma documentary. Uh, I'm going to have all the links, obviously, in our uh, Facebook groups and pages as well. Just look for the Australian Rescue Podcast. Uh, but Harry, uh, once again, thanks for uh, joining us today. Stephen, thank you. Uh, stand by. Yeah, have been this, call. this is the Australian Rescue Podcast. This is the Australian Rescue Podcast.